Hi, and welcome to the June edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. The two authors kindly joining us today are Veronica Roberts from the University of Bristol and Pete Ramsen from Rossdale & Partners Newmarket. Veronica is Senior Clinical Fellow at the University of Bristol Vet School and her paper can currently be found on the EVJ website under the Early View section. The paper is entitled Neuromodulation Using Percutaneous Electrical Nerve Stimulation for the Management of Trigeminal Mediated Head Shaking, a safe procedure resulting in medium-term remission in five of seven horses. Hi Veronica, thank you for joining us today. Um, Can I kick things off by asking for a little background around the atiopathogenesis of trigeminal mediated head shaking. Could you tell us maybe how many horses are affected in the UK? Yeah, so we don't know for sure how many horses are affected in the UK, but the data that we have suggests 1% to 2%, which is 10 to 20,000 horses. Um, Although I think we need to be aware that they are probably affected on a a spectrum. Um, what do we know about trigeminal mediated head shaking? The only fact for sure that we know is that the nerve appears sensitized, so it fires at too low a threshold. Um, and that's really at the moment all, all we know, we, that the nerve is normal um, as far as we can work out um, histologically. Um, and it, it seems to fire at too low a threshold. And the suggestion is that that... Um, is a a functional change rather than a structural change and that potentially is reversible so in a study from uc davis they um, measured somatosensory evoked potentials which are how you tell the threshold potential of the nerve um in some head shaking horses and all of those while they were symptomatic had too low a threshold potential and then they took one horse Um, who was a seasonal head shaker, I think a five-year history of seasonal head shaking, Um, and they measured his threshold potential out of season um, when he was asymptomatic and his threshold potential was normal. Um, And what was perhaps missing from that study, which is no no criticism of the study, was just the circumstances under which they uh, were donated the horses, was that those horses were euthanized after doing the um, threshold potentials. So we haven't been able to repeat the threshold potential in a in a horse back in season again so to compare threshold potentials within the same horse um i think they are working on that um as i'm aware but um that's that's where we are at the moment um we just knew the nervous sensitized so would that be the gold standard to diagnose true trigeminal mediated head shaking yeah ideally that would be the answer i mean i think it's at the moment we probably want a bit more data Um, because it's based on relatively small numbers but that would in sort of in the long term that would be the ideal except that you need to do them on general anaesthesia and I think that would get in the way of being able to use it practically but I think that would be your or potentially be your gold standard yeah. Okay so what therapies are currently being used to treat this problem and how effective do you think they are? Well there's an awful lot out there Um, and of course all our clients go first to Google um, and you can find anything there um, and anything that says it guarantees a cure, simplistic, you know, really easy um, and no problem is unlikely to to be helpful. Um, Of the sort of published um, treatments, 
they largely are based around reducing some level of sensory input um, from the trigeminal nerve. So um, the nose net is the best one to use where it works. So it works in about um, a quarter of horses to reduce clinical signs by about 70%. Um, and that was um, a paper from, I think, Stacey Newton. Um, it work, How does it work? Well, similar it, to, to why if you bang your elbow, you rub it and it feels better. And that, and that is simplistic because obviously it doesn't, it is a different mechanism. It doesn't go through the spinal cord. But um, that seems to be the, the idea that um, it, it's rubbing the nose all the time rather than, as was perhaps originally thought, stopping pollen um, being inhaled. Um, so the nose net is definitely the best one because it's cheap. You can uh, compete unless you're competing FEI. You can use a nose net um, and it's obviously non-invasive and risk-free. But certainly the um, majority of head shakers don't respond to a nose net and a few of them are actually made made worse by them. So where do you go next? Um, medication has been quite a lot um, published, but again, variable results. Um, and I think medication for neuropathic pain in people is quite poor from an efficacy point of view. So you'll get some individuals who respond well. Um, and it's similar in horses. I think you will get some individuals who respond and some individuals who respond, but only short term um i think our chances of success for neuropathic pain medication in horses are likely to be lower than in people because we kind of just extrapolate the dose from what's used in people so it's less than than ideal circumstances um other problems with using the medication obviously over a long period of time that's going to get um, expensive you um, would not be able to compete on the medication and um, some of them have side effects of, of drowsiness which again will affect some individuals more than others but I think does lead to a potential question for for safety for advising people on, on whether they should ride their horses um, so I don't tend to, to use medication but I would never stop someone from trying it if that's what the, the client wants to try I think it's perfectly valid I just think it's it's different between people and horses and ideally you need a horse to to go back to to competition and to to stay safe so i don't tend to use it but i would criticize nobody for for using them um other published um treatments there is a a few bits and bobs published um there's a two cases of sodium chromoglycate eye drops working i think it was two might be four but it was um just one very small study um but that was effective um homeopathy um also effective um and then acupuncture was not effective using a vaccine was um a dnrh vaccine was not effective and using a feed supplement was not effective and one of the things that sort of doing the that uh, also pulse dose dexamethasone was also ineffective and i think even when you look at the studies that say they have had good results um, and have been effective. I think it's there's a huge placebo effect um, in veterinary medicine, and, and that was shown up quite nicely by the um, Wendy Torbett's feed supplement study. Um, the owners desperately want their horses to get better, so they think they are better. So for, for my studies, the criteria for success has been that they have had to go back to ridden work at the level they were doing before they developed the problem. So then that is an attempt at taking out the subjectivity, although it certainly isn't 
um, I- ideal, but I think that's probably the best you can do. But they need to go back to to ridden work. So um, certainly for some of those studies, owners said they felt their horses were better, but and that was taken as success. But that might not necessarily be um, as good a result as as you would need. And I think if you can't ride your horse, and that's what horses are for, then mm. I don't know that that counts as a as a success. It may have improved it, but it may not have improved it enough. Um, other so that's sort of um, medication and other things that are published. Um, the coil compression surgery um, can certainly help horses. We did get um, some horses going back to work for um, a reasonable length of time, but you do get um, about a quarter of them relapsing, and um, some of them have some really quite nasty side effects. And most of those wore off, but four out of fifty-eight horses had to be euthanized because of them. So I do say to clients that it's, it's not a no, don't do it, but it's a no, don't do it unless your only alternative is euthanasia. Um, so that's why we were trying to find something that's potentially um, effective and also safer. And ideally, we would get a cure that would um, cure them forever and be safe. And we're certainly not at, not at that stage yet. Um, but we have um, made, I think, some quite exciting progress. I think we're probably barking up up the right tree just in slightly the wrong direction still because it's too early okay so could you describe for our listeners the theory behind percutaneous electrical nerve stimulation and explain the procedure for us yes yeah, so the, the theory is that it effectively resets the threshold potential to normal for a period of time and actually that's never been tested from an electrophysiologic point of view and so that all the studies in people have been very clinical so based on how people feel um, after treatment and they've been quite good studies as, as as much as you can in this kind of field um, in that they've been double blinded and sham controlled and success has been judged um, quite often on things like whether or not they've reduced their pain medication as opposed to falling down the placebo trap um, but potentially it doesn't change threshold potential because that hasn't hasn't been it's not, not so much that hasn't been proven it hasn't been looked at um but that was the the theory behind it so maybe we are looking at a more, something more central i i don't know we don't know how it how it works um people certainly when they are having the procedure usually report almost instant alleviation of pain um which is quite it's quite interesting. Um, what we do in the procedure is place a um, probe from the um, neurostimulator um, over the top of the nerve, um, ultrasound guided, so that you're lying about a millimetre over the top of the infraorbital nerve. Um, we put a tiny little bit of local anaesthetic just to pop the probe through, but I want that quite a long way from the nerve because obviously we can't have any local anaesthetic going onto the nerve. And once the probe's in place, you start um, stimulating and we're just using a human protocol, which is a very blunt tool because they horses aren't humans. Um, but all we've done is pick up the human protocol and stuck it to a horse because until we have more data, we don't know what to change to make it better. Um, so we do the human protocol to both um, sort of bilaterally um, and then we will exercise the horse a few hours afterwards and then every day. Um, to see what you know what results we have um typically in people after the first treatment 
you will have a remission of signs if you have one at all um, for a few hours, maybe a few days. And then you have your second treatment um, quite shortly afterwards. Um, we tend to do ours about five day interval, five to seven days between first and second. After the second procedure, again, in people, even if the first one worked, potentially the second one doesn't. Um, but if the second one works, then you might have a remission of a few days up to a couple of weeks. Um, so we then do the third procedure 10 days to, to 14 days after the second, unless the, the horse is still in remission. Um, and then the third one in people lasts somewhere between two to six months on average. Um, again, we can have people and horses that respond to one treatment and never again, or don't respond to the first two, and then do you respond to the third one? And so, again, sort of following the guidelines, we've, we, we try and do three treatments to each horse before we decide, okay, three hasn't worked, so four is unlikely to help. But certainly if two haven't worked, we have had horses then going to remission after the third one. Um, so that's our treatment protocol at, at the moment. And I think it's unlikely to change yet until we get more data because we don't know what to change right now. Okay, so what were your inclusion criteria for your cases? And did you see any negative side effects at all? Yeah, so inclusion criteria, I needed a, a firm diagnosis of trigeminal mediated head shaking and potentially as we brought up at the beginning the gold standard would be to do the somatosensory rate potentials um and we didn't do that and arguably that's rightly or wrongly but this these were clinical cases and we only had a very small amount of funding so they were client and insurance vet insurance company funded cases um and so i couldn't really justify going down that route um but we um had horses who had um head shaking which was alleviated by caudal infraorbital um, anesthesia um, and then we so we confirmed head shaking due to facial pain and then I could find no pathology likely to be responsible for that facial pain from um, endoscopy, CT of the head, um, mouth exam and an, and an eye exam. So all the horses in our original study met those criteria. I have since had the odd one who has just said, do you know what, I'm not having a needle in my head or I'm not going into CT but as long as I've been happy with the diagnosis I've continued with those but I thought certainly for the trial it was very important to have as many of the boxes ticked as possible. Um, as regards complications I think this is the the one that, that, that's been really nice and I think what I say to my clients is that we are unlikely to do worse than waste time and money if we try the procedure. So in people actually say it's quite pleasant um, and the only reported complication is a bruise at the site of probe insertion. Um, our horses have all tolerated the procedure very well um, under a detomidine infusion. Um, one day, one of them, I guess, will get upset and climb out of the stocks just the same way that any horse can get upset and climb out of stocks. Um, but I don't think we're at any greater risk than doing any other procedure standing sedated um i've given a couple of them a, a hematoma um probably fingers of, of one hand um none of them had any problems from that hematoma um potentially you could introduce infection um we haven't had that but we are um quite careful to keep things clean um and otherwise there's been no um no side effects um one horse did have three or four days of severe head shaking afterwards but no more severe than she was capable of doing beforehand 
um, after one procedure. But that that's it's and that that wasn't one wasn't in the study that's been since. Um, but again, she was just having three or four bad days as opposed to showing signs worse than she had previously. Um, and apart from that, we haven't seen any any problems. So I think that that's the nice thing about it is that we might waste time and money um, and not get a result, but we're unlikely to cause any problems. So what what were your average remission um, times that you found? I know you briefly said before, but overall, with all the cases, what were your they've, average remission times? They've massively, massively varied, actually. And, and I um, I can't now, now remember what calculation we put in the paper, but obviously because time, time's moved on since. But um, since the study, and obviously we've done some more horses, I have some horses that haven't responded at all. Uh, some horses that respond to one or two treatments and then don't respond again. So they're just, you know, responding for a couple of days um, or a couple of weeks. And then I have others who have, have really responded for an incredibly long time. So I have definitely two that have gone more than 15 months now, um, both of whom were in the study, but they've carried on free of, of any clinical signs. Um, and then I have a couple who've done five months um, before needing a, a, a fourth treatment. Um, and then fairly recently, one who was nine weeks after their third one, which I was quite happy with um, because that's fair for a human. But um, but that was too short a remission time for the client. So, um, so I don't know whether a fourth treatment would have given us a bit longer. Okay. Um, and would you carry out this treatment alongside other current treatments? What I've been doing is, um, obviously, most of our horses have had a nose net on before they come in. Um, and a lot of them have had all sorts of other things tried as well. Um, and if owners want to try pharmaceuticals, I'm quite happy to let them. And we have quite a long discussion as to what we're going to, to do. But it, if they don't respond to a nose net, I would recommend using this as a first line because it can have the most incredible results. I do just make sure that clients are aware that it might have no results at all and that it might have results that are too short um, remission time to be practical for them. So, you know, if I have a client that says, oh, I definitely need my horse to be 100% better forever after this treatment, I don't think that probably doesn't make me a very good candidate. Um, however, most owners of head-shaking horses are pretty realistic. Um, and potentially if you had a horse that you could even retreat, you know, four times a year, it, that, that may work for for some owners um so i do make sure that they are aware that remission may not happen at all and if it does happen it might be temporary and that might be too temporary to be practical for them but as long as they've understood all that um then we try the the neuromodulation first and it's definitely worth it for you know for the horses that have had good remission it's it's great and i, I get videos regularly i had one yesterday of a horse outgoing doing his first BD dressage test and he won it. So, um, you know, that's that's really nice to to see where it works. I, I just think it's so early that I, I, I do manage owner expectations um, quite uh, quite strongly because um, I don't want them to expect too much But because um, it's just too early, really. So are you planning on um, carrying out any further work to optimise this treatment? You think at the moment the most important thing is to get more data. So to continue our standard protocols and and, and then see what results we have at the end. Um, and we are 
doing some work um, still with the neurosurgeons who we worked with just for for this this study um, to see what we can do where our remission times have been too short to be practical because in human medicine they will start with a neuromodulation and if your remission time is too short to be practical then there's a couple of other options um, that are available so um, we are going to start exploring whether that's possible but again that would be for horses that have responded to neuromodulation just for too short a period of time as opposed to haven't responded at all so I think we would still at the moment continue with the neuromodulation I mean what I would like is for someone else to find a nice easy cheap safe permanent cure um but until someone does that I think this is a a sensible thing to continue um working with and, and exploring um as long as you know we manage owner expectations and we can have some great results okay well thank you for joining us today um that's a really interesting topic and i appreciate you telling us about it you're very welcome our next guest is pete ramsden he's one of the racing partners at rostell and partners new market and he'll be discussing his most recent paper on unicortical condylar fracture of the thoroughbred fetlock Hi Pete, thanks for joining us today. So your paper describes unicortical condylar fracture of fetlocks in 45 thoroughbred racehorses. Can I start by asking you how these fractures usually arise? Condylar fractures are one of the most important injuries of, of the racing thoroughbred and one of the main causes of catastrophic injury both on the racetrack and in training. And we know in in large part that these injuries arise from repetitive stress injury at the back of the condyle, um, the fetlock subjected to large strains, particularly at mid-stance, and cumulative micro-damage can build up at particularly the parasagittal region. Um, Also, the condyle changes in response to exercise such that there can be a sheer strain differential between the condyle and the parasagittal region. So, so these are injuries that arise from repetitive stress and ultimately some, some bones fail. Uh, we understand that um, true complete condylar fracture therefore goes through a prodromal stage in, in most cases. So what were your reasons behind this study? The stimulus for this paper really arose due to a clinical question posed to us by one of our trainers in respect of um, the usefulness of treatment of some of these early condylar fractures that we've been detecting for some time and particularly whether surgical intervention is warranted. Um, We felt that the subject certainly deserved some objective analysis and therefore we should go back and determine exactly how many cases of prodromal or unicortical condylar fracture that we'd seen over the years, how these had been managed and the outcomes of those cases so that we could advise trainers going forward whether these are cases that should be managed conservatively or indeed with surgical intervention. So, Pete, what was your study design and what was your diagnostic inclusion criteria? So, the study design was based around attempting to 
identify all animals in our first opinion thoroughbred practice that had sustained a unicortical condylar fracture. And this involved reviewing all imaging studies involving radiological or low field standing MRI um, of all horses during a period from June 2006 to 2013, so a seven-year period. Radiological inclusion criteria were the presence of a distinct linear uniaxial parasagittal radiolucency, and that was with or without condylar radiodensity, um, visible on only on the flexed dorsopalmar or plantar dorsal radiological project projection. Um, horses that had subtle, ambiguous, or absent radiological abnormality were only included if injury was co confirmed with standing low-field MRI. Uh, inclusion cr criteria for the MRI were a, a direct evidence of a cortical breach, so a cortical fissure extending a variable distance into cancellous bone with associated stir T two-star hyperintensity in the surrounding bone. So what did you conclude from these results? What was the signalment and diagnostic findings? So we identified 45 horses during the seven-year period that had sustained a unicortical condylar fracture. Um, injuries were unilateral in the majority of cases, 44 cases. Most cases were four-limb, 78%. And that concurs with what we know about clinical complete condylar fractures in racing, they more generally occur in the forelimb. Um, the majority of injuries involve the lateral condyle. Uh, lameness was typically mild to moderate. So on a grading scale of out of 10, the mean initial grade of lameness at time of diagnosis was 3.5. Lameness was typically unilateral, so 96% of cases displayed a unilateral lameness. And interestingly, some of those cases, four cases, only displayed lameness under tack. So these were horses that were sound when trotted in hand, but consistently lame when observed under a rider. Um, a small number of cases displayed a, a marked but transient lameness post-fast exercise, so either post-gallop or post-race that, that resolved fairly rapidly within 12 to 24 hours. And did you find any particular clinical signs associated with these, um, with these fractures? No, one of, the, one of the very key features of this condition appears to be that the fetlock is free from palpable clinical abnormality. And this is something we've recognized for some time and it was confirmed with the results of the study. So these are typically cold, tight fetlocks, no effusion, no palpable abnormality and, and nothing to give away that the fetlock is the origin of the lameness. So did most of these cases block with diagnostic analgesia? So blocking was undertaken in the majority of cases, 76% of cases, um, and these cases that were blocked or responded favourably to regional analgesia of the either the fetlock joint or a low four-point block. Um, not all cases clearly were 
subjected to diagnostic blocking, and this is largely because some cases presented as an initial fracture risk and therefore imaging was undertaken in the first instance. So what was the best radiographic projection to highlight um, these fractures? So these fractures are only visible on the flexed dorsopalmar or plantar dorsal radiographic projection. They're not visible at all on any of the other standard views. And the description of this projection has been around for a long time. Pillsworth published it in 1988, but it hasn't really been taken up necessarily that widely across the industry. In 2013, the Hong Kong Jockey Club stipulated that this projection should be used for the front fetlocks, and that has prompted um, a, a greater uptake of use of this projection. But it's it's really important projection for picking up not just unicortical fractures as in this study, but for um, increased or altered condylar density that's seen with pod lesions and some of the more chronic repetitive stress injuries associated with the back of the fetlock. So would you suggest inclusion in all routine fetlock series? Yeah, absolutely. For, for racehorse radiography, the flexed DP or PD view um, is essential and and not just a single view, I should add. It's it's important to take several appropriately angled um, projections of slightly different um, obliquity to pick up different parts of the palmar condyle. Obviously, these fractures arise very close behind the... Um, transverse ridge at the bottom of the cannon bone and one is trying by using this projection to lift the base of the proximal sesamoid bones away from the palmar or plantar processes of the long paston bone and to do so requires generally several projections. Okay so I think approximately 25% had no radiological abnormalities, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and if MRI is impossible, what do you suggest? Yeah, absolutely. We we found in practice that, that cases that are equivocal on radiography uh, are best sent to low-field MRI for confirmation of um, whether an injury is present or not. But if that's not an option and it's not always an option, um, geographically or indeed economically for some horses um, and certainly the the course of action for horses where there's a suspicion of a unicortical fracture on initial imaging is for the horse to rest and then have repeat radiography in 7 to 14 days just as you would with many other sites of suspected um, stress injury. Um, we tend to advise that horses are removed from fast-ridden work, but depending on initial clinical findings, uh, there's no reason why they have to remain box resting. They can they can maintain low-level exercise until such time as radiography is performed. Did you find any link between initial radiological abnormalities and risk of re-injury? 
Yeah, so, I mean, this was the initial stimulus for the, the paper is, is determining the correct way to, to manage these cases. And we'd recognised that some cases re-injure um, when they had been treated conservatively. So we had a minimum of six-month follow-up um, for the cases included in the in the study. Um, 71% of cases raced at least once, but probably more a more interesting figure is that, that 30 horses of the 45 were not retired for other reasons. So for various reasons, horses dropped by the wayside, they're retired for breeding re purposes or they're sold on and they're lost to follow-up and they don't necessarily return to racing. But of the 30 horses that were intended to return to racing, 28 of them um, raced again. So that's over 93% of horses raced again. Um, median days return to racing was 259. However, five horses that had been treated conservatively re-injured and, and four of those had already t returned to racing. So they tend to re-injure the horses that re-injured, re-injured quite some time after initial injury. So what proportion of these cases were managed conservatively and how many surgically? So five horses were um, managed surgically with a insertion of a single Lags grew across the distal cannon. Um, four of these it was undertaken as a standing procedure. Um, two horses that subsequently re-injured when they had been dealt with conservatively initially um, subsequently had similar surgery. It's worth mentioning that surgery was undertaken in these horses based more on a desire to minimise the potential risk of re-injury rather than based on any severity of initial radiological findings. So these were cases, this injury is still subject to quite a lot of debate as to the best way to manage it. And if, if it is to be surgical, the best surgical technique and um, the, the lag screws in this study were placed in the typical position for a complete condylar fracture, um, whereas Obviously, the, the fracture line on imaging is much lower in the condyle um, and, and the surgery in these cases really was undertaken um, as a way of testing the water and seeing whether we could get a better outcome for those cases that were dealt with surg surgically. So uh, you do mention scintigraphy in the paper. Um, did you find this added any additional information to the radiological or MRI findings? So scintigraphy was only um, utilised in one case and in that case it was found not to be useful. So um, this, this um, fits fairly well with our experience of scintigraphy with conditions involving the back of the fetlock, the condylar region um, that can include palmar osteochondral disease and, and fracture. Um, and the the anatomical resolution and and degree of uptake does not seem to be that useful in differentiating um, palmar osteochondral disease from unicortical fracture, at least in our um, certainly in this study and and um, in our clinical experience from our caseload. You mentioned previously that there was an absence of um, palpable clinical abnormalities. 
a complete or an incomplete condylar fracture, as you, you've written, usually presents with a marked synovular fusion. So why do you think this particular condition has an absence of signs? Oh, so, I mean, really pertinent point. This, I think it has to be established that the unicortical fractures highlighted in this paper are early prodromal um, cases cases of fracture right at the beginning of the curve, even though they've been developing for some time, clearly due to repetitive stress at the back of the fetlock. These are cases that, if if undetected, go on to, to produce complete fractures, um, such as you're describing, acute, severe lameness, um, marked effusion of the fetlock, sometimes catastrophic breakdown, um, and and the reason one presumes that that these horses with unicortical condylar fractures don't have effusion of the fetlock is that the cartilage is still relatively intact and the damage is occurring in the subchondral bone and hasn't yet progressed to be a complete fracture. So what are the prog- what's the prognosis for these kind of cases? So of the 30 horses that returned to training, five, so that's nearly 17%, re-injured um, either with a, another short unicortical fracture or in one case a, a complete condylar fracture at the same site. Um, and, and whether these were um, re-injuries due to incomplete healing of the original fracture or due to inherent risk factors associated with that individual limb, we don't really know, although we do know that these horses had healed radiologically um, before they were then subsequently found to have re-injured. Two, two cases, um, it, was, it was determined, um, had been misdiagnosed at the time of initial imaging. And those horses trained on for quite some time, 108 days and 197 days. And both of those cases ended up, um, unfortunately, going on to complete catastrophic fractures. So um, that that also confirms our clinical um, feeling that these are cases that that progress and if not detected, and, and there is... A, apparently a considerably long um, period window of opportunity for detection of these injuries. But if, if they're not detected, then they can go on to c- complete or catastrophic fracture. So th- this certainly reflects what we recognise in clinical practice, that some yards with a much higher level of vigilance for low-grade lameness will have a lower surgical fracture rate than others where veterinary input may not be so targeted. Um, And it's simply the case that some trainers are better at detecting injuries before they progress too far, before they're allowed to deteriorate on the racetrack. And this is something that we've recognised in the past with other types of stress-related injuries such as tibial and pelvic stress fractures. Uh, it's it's worth noting that this um, study was drawn from our first opinion practice and therefore covered a wide range of trainers who use different tracks and different surfaces, turf or weather, for training and fast work throughout the year. Um, so really this can be considered a representative um, study of 
unicortical condylar fractures in first opinion UK thoroughbred practice. So the take-home message really from the paper is um, that with appropriate vigilance to low-grade lameness and then appropriate and targeted imaging, initially radiological imaging and, if necessary, standing low-field MRI, that many cases of unicortical fracture and what we consider to be prodromal condylar fracture can be detected before these cases go on to become complete or catastrophic fractures and, and that although rehabilitation for these injuries still remains a little bit of an unknown um, and most cases appear to heal well with um, conservative management, it does appear that, that there are some advantages to be um, gained by surgical intervention and, and the re-injury rate of conservatively managed cases of approaching 20% um, makes that makes surgery a viable option for some some cases. Well, that's great, Pete. Thanks very much for your time. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again to both of our authors and join us again for our next podcast.